Welcome back to our study of the book of Joel. In this video, we're going to be looking at Joel chapter 2. So uh, let's take a look at this, this uh, Bible text together. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes. Such as never had, was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses, they gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops, like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. Uh, let, let's pause right here and let's make sure that, uh, that we're on the same page about what's going on. Remember from Joel chapter 1 that uh, what God is, is uh, kind of revealing to Joel and showing them is there has been sin that has come into the land of Israel. And what Joel is calling them to do is to recognize that this locust plague, the, the, all these locusts that have come into their area and have just taken away everything. And really chapter one was a lot about how bad it got. And really chapter two is going to look at some of the same things. I mean, that's what we're already looking at right here. This is a continuation. And uh, at the end of, of chapter one, we saw the connection with the locust plague that was coming upon them that was connected to the day of the Lord. And here we see it again, once again, talking about the day of the Lord is coming. And the day of the Lord is, is a day in which, which judgment was going to be taking place, a day in which justice was gonna be taking place. Of course, those who, who uh, are being oppressed and who are faithful to God, uh, they're gonna be lifted up. The ones who are not so faithful to God, of course, they're gonna be brought down low. That's what it meant about the day of the Lord. It's kind of a day whenever things are, are put back right, uh, if you will. I, I guess that's at least somewhat of a way for us to look at the day of the Lord. And, and of course, any day of the Lord that we see, this one, it, it has to do with the locust plague, but any day of the Lord that you see in the Old Testament, it points toward that final day of judgment in which all must stand before the judgment seat of our God. Right here, the way that he's describing it is these locusts, they're like an army, which also I kind of mentioned this last week as well, but this has led some people to kind of think that, well, maybe he's not exactly talking about locusts. It, it's kind of a little bit confusing because at what point are we talking about these images um, and that these are actually what they're seeing. And at what point are we looking at symbols as to they represent things? But right here, it is most certainly clear that what's being described is a locust plague has come through, but this locust plague and this army of locusts is described as an army. And it's described as like this battle that's taking place. So I want us to, to connect these two things. And perhaps a, a good way to just kind of explain it and look at it is, that uh, what we're going to see is the Lord is the one who's controlling this. The Lord is the one who has caused this to happen. He's caused this to happen because of the sin that has come uh, uh, throughout the people during the time of Joel. Now, we're not told what that sin is. We're just told they sinned. They know they sinned. Joel knows they sinned. This plague has come upon them. Now, what are they going to do? What's their response to all of this? We see a large and mighty army is described in verse 2. We see verse 3. This is very interesting to me, especially because... 
you know, I really like the book of Genesis and I, I like all the beginnings that are described there. And right here it says, before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. It's one of the few times that the Garden of Eden is actually being described. But right here, it, it describes that before this army of locusts come through, it looks like a garden, looks like paradise. But then behind them, it's a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. It's kind of like a little bit of an undoing of creation. Because at the beginning of the creation week, what you see is everything is like a waste. You know, everything is, uh, and I don't mean that like it's, it's, uh, it's just bad. It just, it wasn't formed yet. That's how uh, the creation story starts. And then God takes all this chaos and all this confusion and all this just kind of unformless stuff. And he makes something special out of it. Well, now we kind of see the opposite of that. Okay, what God has already made and it is good. Now it's kind of being undone. Um, that's part of what the day of the Lord is about. That's part of what God does um, to kind of show us our dependence of our dependency upon God is to he takes back some of his um, his involvement in the world around us. And, you know, he doesn't actually, uh, you know, I'm convinced that God doesn't really have to do anything negative to us in order for negative things to happen to us. I'm convinced that what all that God has to do for negative things to come to us is that he just moves away a little bit. And he does that whenever we are moving away from him. It's to teach us we are dependent upon God. We have to be involved, engaged in this relationship with God. So this is how it's described. It's like the Garden of Eden before, and then behind them, it's just waste. But there's more about this army that's being described. And of course, we're going to be getting into some negative things before we get into positive. But I can assure you, there is some positive. In fact, there's a lot of positive in this chapter. It's a, it's a wonderful chapter of the book of Joel. And it's right in the middle. Verses 6 through 11 now. Still describing this locust army. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. They each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Now, I mean, just think about this. I know I didn't read all of it. We're going to be in verses 10 and 11 in just a moment. But, I mean, think about these images that are being described. This is an army of locusts that's coming through. There's nothing you can do to stop. They're just coming up over the walls. They're coming through uh, windows, every opening and, and everything. That's just how it's happening. I mean, just recognize the severity of this. Now verses 10 and 11. Before them, the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Now, of course, here in this passage, what we're reading about is this locust plague. And, you know, there was a locust plague another time in the Bible, of course, in the land of Egypt, whenever the exodus was taking place. And one of the plagues was locusts. And, you know, that's all well and good for the Israelites to look at that and they say, well, okay, Egypt deserved it. They can kind of, you know, justify that. But now it's kind of turned upon them. They are the ones who were in the position of Egypt. They're the ones who are um, committing all these sins. They're the ones who have turned their back on God. And because of that, God has allowed this. In fact, he is, he is controlling it. It says that, verse 11, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. This is his army. This is the Lord's doing. There should be no doubt about that. And see, oftentimes, the way the Israelites talked about the day of the Lord 
you know, they were excited because they were like, yes, all these nations around us, they're going to get what's coming to them. And sometimes we think that too, don't we? I mean, let, let's face it, because we're, we're Christians, we, we try to emphasize love, we try to emphasize grace and mercy, but deep within us, that's oftentimes what we want. We want people to get justice. We want them to get exactly what they dished out. We want them to get it right back to them. And sometimes God does that, and he does that for a purpose. And right here, um, the, the thing about it is that Israel usually was so excited whenever God was doing this to other nations. But many times what God did is he did these types of things to the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel oftentimes looked like all the other people. And I think there's applications for us in the church today as well, for us to think about that and for us to think about what it means that how do we, what do we wish upon other people? You know, do we want them to get just negative things all the time? Or do we recognize that perhaps some negative things are important from time to time, but only for the sake of disciplining and only for the sake of, of bringing them back to God? The Lord is the one who's in control of this army. He is at the head of his army. We also find out the day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? We read these things. In fact, we might even be looking at it today and say, okay, well, that was Israel. Okay, they deserved it. What about us today? What about the church today? Has the church ever throughout history perhaps gone down the road, the wrong road for so long that they needed some correction? I'm not saying necessarily in every single generation, but I am saying that perhaps from time to time. In fact, I mean, just look at church history and you will see from time to time there has been moments whenever it would be fitting for God to step in and for him to correct us and for us to be set back right on the, on the correct pathway, on the way that leads to Christ, the way that, that leads to Jesus, the way that leads to the Father and our God. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Well, nobody without God's help. But... Now we see that this is kind of this, this, this negative thing. And, and by the way, I hope that you have uh, gone online and, and, uh, and downloaded a copy of this. And, you know, as you look at this, one of the three things that they sort of do, this is from the Bible Project, okay? And uh, I talked about this in the last video. But one of the, the three things that they do and talk about is, the first one is the announcement of disaster. Okay, that's kind of what we're looking at right now. But then there's a call to repent, and then there's also acts of repentance. We see that some in chapter 1, and we, we looked at those things. But, you know, now we're seeing that also being repeated in chapter 2. And at the end of this video, we're going to see that that's also something that carries over into the New Testament. That we see that there's an announcement of disaster, there's some type of judgment, some type of day of the Lord, so to speak. But then after that, there is this call of repentance. In fact, through it, there's a call of repentance. And then there's the choice, are they going to repent or are they not going to repent? It's up to us as to what we do in those cases. Now we see this is the call to repent. Let's look at it. Verses 12 through 17. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly. 
Gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priest who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? All of these are, are great questions. All this is a great call, a great call to repentance. And what, what we see, let's, let's work through some of these phrases here. Verse 12, return to me with all of your heart. That's so important. And the type of repentance that God desires from us is mentioned in verse 13. Rend your heart and not your garments. Okay, we read these weird passages about how people like tore their garments and stuff. And I don't know, I'm going to call them weird because I think they're weird. I think that's an odd way of showing uh, your grief. But yet, I mean, I guess I can kind of understand it. There's just like, what else do you do? And they just take their garments and just, you know, rip them and stuff. Um, that's described a few times in scriptures. But what God is saying is, look, rend your heart, not your garments. Don't worry as much about these outward appearances. You know, if you rend, if you, uh, you, if you tear your garments, everybody could see that, okay, you're suffering, you're going through something. But what he's saying is, do this to your heart. Make it actually be more impactful rather than just on, an, on the outward, the, the surface of it. And he's not talking about any type of physical harm. He's just saying, look, it's a heart issue. It's internal. It's not just like ripping your garments is going to, to, uh, to, to fix everything. It needs to go deeper than that. And it's this call to return to the Lord your God. And look at how our God is described. He's described as gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, love and he relents from sinning calamity. Now that's our God. That's the God of the Old Testament. That's the God of the New Testament. But you know, even though he is all of these things, and yes, he relents from sending calamity, he sometimes sends them whenever they're necessary, whenever they need to be sent. And here among these people, they all need to come to God. And that, that's why it's, it's describing literally all the different types of groups of people. It doesn't matter what you're in the, in the middle of doing. Look, turn to God, follow him. This needs to be a whole community event. That's what's being described right here. That's the type of repentance that God's want. True repentance. And that, uh, that kind of call at the very end of verse 17 is, you know, they don't want their own nation to be, you know, the, the name of, of Israel to be dragged through the mud, so to speak. They don't want other nations to say, where is your God? The God of Israel is the one true, powerful creator and God of all. He is the God above all gods. That's how he's described in the Old Testament. The inheritance of God, the people of God, should not be considered as an object of scorn and a byword among the nations. And I would say the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ today, doesn't need to be thought of like that either. How do we avoid that? Well, we avoid it by actually, you know, kind of listening to passages like this. Listen to this call to repent. Where is our God? He's in the same place he's always been. He's among us. He's throughout us. Throughout the entire world, throughout all of creation. So we see there is uh, that judgment. There is that uh, disaster. And there is, in Joel's case, a locust plague. Now there's a call to repent. And we see that that if they, uh, you know, do repent and all, we actually are going to see about how the Lord uh, responds to that and how what the Lord actually really wants. Okay, yes, He wants repentance, 
but he also wants more than that. Let's keep reading. Verses 18 through 20 now. Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain, new wine, and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea and its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea, and its stench will go up. Its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. This passage is talking about what God wants to do. He wants to take away this calamity. He wants to give them all of these great things. And in fact, he says that I am doing these things. This is how our God is. He is so wonderful because he looks forward. He sees these things as momentary. And he sees that there is still a future. He wants there to be a future. And he wants, he calls the people of God to be a part of that future. He has done great things. The text continues. Verses 21 through 27. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their, their riches. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. You will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. That's what God desires. That's what God wants. This is what he wants to do. He wants to repay them, verse 25, for what the, the locusts have eaten. He, yeah, he sent the locusts. I mean, that's what he says. My great army that I sent among you. He sent that army among them. But what he wants to do is he wants to repay them. He wants to give them back everything that they lost and then some. You know, they're going to have plenty. They're going to have an abundance of it. The whole reason is verse 27. Then you will know that I am in Israel and that I am the Lord your God. We can see these things can carry over into the New Testament as well, into the church today. Because God is still among us. And whenever we uh, are working with God, then we can see God working among us, working through us. And he is the Lord, our God. So we see here that there's this call to repentance and uh, really God's response to that repentance. But now... In the last few verses of this chapter, what we're going to see is probably the most famous passage of this chapter because you know it from the New Testament. First, let's see it from Joel 2, then we're going to see it from the New Testament. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32 now. And afterward, okay, after all these things that we looked at, uh, after what happens is disaster comes upon them, after they repent, after the Lord responds by blessing them, he says, afterward... I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. This passage right here was quoted by Peter on, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And he says, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. The spirit of the Lord is being poured out on all people. God says he'll do it. He said it in Joel. He says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all people, on men, women, old men, young men, all of them, young and old uh, alike. Everybody is going to receive the spirit. We see all of these these images about kind of um, you know cosmic stuff, things in the heavens, the the sun, the moon, the stars. All these things are kind of described in this image, which uh, which you know by the way it's it's to tell us, look, this is a big deal. This involves not just earthly things, but heaven and earth. You know, the heavens and the earth. That is what these these images are being described of. It's a huge deal whenever the spirit of the Lord comes. And the Spirit of the Lord came on that day of Pentecost. And we see that, that uh, where, where Peter actually stops quoting is at uh, the first half of 32. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's actually where he stops. The rest of that verse says, For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance. And it talks about whom the Lord calls. That the Lord is going to call people. That there's going to be this deliverance. There's going to be this salvation that happens. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what the Spirit is promised about doing. And we see in Acts 2 that that's what the Spirit does. And we also see that salvation that was brought to all peoples. All those who would put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. So now uh, let's look at one more slide here. And let's compare Joel 2 with kind of Acts 2. So now, this whole thing about how there's this day of the Lord, there's this, this judgment taking place, there's this call to repent, and then there's, uh, there's also the repentance that takes place, the act of repentance. Uh, what I want us to see is, is how that's reflected in the pages of Acts. So, in Acts chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 36 on down to verse 41. This is Peter's sermon uh, already Peter starts off and he says, look, these things that you see, it's the Holy Spirit coming upon us. It's fulfillment of Joel 2. He quotes Joel 2. He quotes a few other passages and everything. And then at the kind of height of his sermon, he says in verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Okay, see, that's the negative things. That's kind of that judgment uh, that, that has come upon them. They have crucified him. Well, what are they going to do now? Verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Let's pause there again. Okay, so what's happening? Isn't this interesting that it's language similar to that God wanted them to rend their heart, not their garments? They were cut to the heart here in verse 37, and they want to know, what shall we do? What do we need to do? Well, Peter replied in verse 38. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and for all whom the, who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Here you see all these same types of things about the Lord calling these people. We also see the Holy Spirit being mentioned. The Holy Spirit was already poured out among these people. He's mentioned right here about receiving this gift of the Holy Spirit. We also see that it's for all people. 
Okay, I kind of already missed that one. I'm sort of working in reverse. We see forgiveness of sins being mentioned. That's that deliverance that was described in Joel 2. We also see the call to repent and to do something, to be baptized, to follow Jesus and to do all of these things within the name of Jesus. Now, of course, that's not as much about uh, what, uh, what Joel 2 was about because, you know, Jesus hadn't been born yet. But Joel 2 was most certainly pointing forward to this time and telling them about the time whenever Jesus was going to come and the Holy Spirit was going to come and to be poured out among them all. Now let's see how they responded uh, to this. They, they now have been told what they're going to do. They've been told that all of them can receive these great things. Are they going to receive them? Verses 40 and 41. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's what the Lord was doing. The Lord was the one who was adding to their number daily. That's what it says in the last verse of, of uh, Acts um, 2. But we see that they accepted his message. They did something about it. They followed him. They followed through with these acts of repentance. So Joel 2 while it might seem very distant to us, and it might seem like it doesn't apply to us, that it's talking about Israel, there are so many lessons for which we can learn. We can learn about how God acts within history, but we can also learn about what God desires from those. You know, what type of responses he wants and the type of people that he calls us to be. Because he's always called the people of God to be the same throughout history. I mean, the way that it might show up from time to time could be a little different. Of course, it's different in the Old Testament compared to the New Testament. But God is still wanting the same types of people. He's wanting it to affect our hearts. And he's wanting it to actually do something. To change something about the way we interact with one another. And the way that we interact with our God. We can receive all these great blessings. We can receive this deliverance. God has called us. Will we answer that call? Will we do something about it? Not just outwardly, but inwardly as well. That's a lesson from Joel 2. That's a lesson from Acts 2. That's a lesson that we can learn and share today.